Okay, good morning, Grace Point, and everyone tuned in today. I am so happy to be here. Um, and for those of you in Nashville, I am so sad we can't meet in person together in this sacred space, but we are taking measures, of course, to protect one another and ourselves, and that is sacred too. So, um, last time I was with you all, I was, yes, very pregnant, and since I have had my little baby who is now four months old and um, so incredibly yummy and we are exhausted but so in love and it is a wonderful um, time for my family and when we first well when i was here last some of you guys had sent gift cards and meals and meal trains and all that kind of stuff um, to support us in those first few very difficult very difficult weeks and so this community is truly beautiful and i thank you so today, I actually want to talk to you about the book of Jonah. I've been thinking a lot about the book of Jonah lately as I work on another writing project, and I'm looking at passages and books of the Bible that have that lullaby effect. You know, the one that happens when we've read a story a million times or we've been taught a story over and over again, typically beginning when we're a kid. Um, and because we feel like we know it, or we might know it, like the back of our hand, we sort of stop paying attention to the details. The lullaby effect might lead us to miss little things that um, we never noticed in the story that might illuminate something new in us and something new in it. And this is entirely, this isn't entirely our fault, of course, the lack of theological imagination in many of the Christian spaces we've been trained in might force us to stick to one way to read a story or believe that there's only one lesson that we might learn from a given passage. So when we do decide to read through the Bible, if we decide to read through the Bible, we might glaze through these stories, like the one of David and Goliath or the story of Noah and the flood, um, or Jonah, because we feel like it's so familiar. Or perhaps we might protest the Bible altogether because of the ways it's been used and abused and used to abuse. Or simply, we might simply shrug off stories like the story of Jonah because, come on, there's no way it really happened. And we know how obsessed evangelicals can be with it having to have happened in order for it to matter or have truth. Or we miss important lessons about the story because those who've taught us about the Bible in many traditional spaces might have anti-Semitic leanings and teachings and they'll claim that all we need to know about the story of Jonah is that Jonah is actually really just like Jesus, right? Three days in the belly, three days in the tomb. The point is that all of it is so complicated. The Bible and life and faith and our understandings of it all. There are more questions than answers, and many of us haven't been given the freedom to let the questions just be that, questions, without clear-cut answers. And I'm not going to make your life any easier this morning by offering solutions. I sort of just want to keep wrestling with the questions. I want our theological imaginations to soar because that is where we might meet the divine and our deeper and truer selves. And I just love the story of Jonah because I think it invites us to do this. To imagine, to ask good questions, and to wrestle. So before we get there, I want to give you a quick recap or catch you up in case it's been a while since you've heard the story. So the book of Jonah begins with God's instruction to Jonah that he's to go to Nineveh. 
But instead, Jonah flees to Tarshish, which back then was thought of as a sort of paradise. So he like literally goes to the opposite place of where he's supposed to go, and he goes on a ship. But while he's on the boat, there's a great wind and a great storm, and the sailors of the ship are scared, so they start crying out to their respective gods and hurling their cargo out uh, to sea to make the ship lighter. But Jonah had gone down to the bottom of the boat to sleep, the ship's officer sees him sleeping and is like, how can you be asleep, Jonah? Pray to your God and see if he'll listen. So then they cast lots to see who's to blame for this, and the lot falls on Jonah, and they're like, okay, so who are you, Jonah? He says, I'm a Hebrew who worships the Lord, who made the sea and the dry land, which, by the way, I just love all of the creation imagery in this story, but that's an entirely different sermon. Anyway, Jonah tells uh, the sailors to just throw him into the sea to stop the storm. But if you notice, they don't really do that at first. They actually keep trying to row to shore. And then they pray to Jonah's God. They repent and convert, which is kind of bizarre given the history of Israel's enemies, right? Like they don't usually repent and convert so quickly and so easily. Then in chapter 2, the great fish, another interesting detail in the story, everything is great and big and exaggerated. The great fish swallows Jonah and offers a long prayer in which he talks about going down into the underworld. And some suggest that that's exactly what happened, actually, that Jonah drowned or nearly died or died. And it wasn't until his body sunk to the bottom of the sea that God sent the fish to save him, to rescue him. The fish acting as a sort of salvific figure, contrary to how it's traditionally taught in many ways, that the fish swallowed Jonah as a sort of punishment and that he hung out in its belly for three days. In fact, the phrase three days and three nights at this time also meant a long journey or a long amount of time. But either way, Jonah delivers this long prayer from the belly of the fish after he's saved, um, and he talks about how seaweed was around, wrapped around his neck and how he sunk to the underworld, but how God brought him out of the pit and how deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then in chapter 3, God speaks to Jonah again and tells him, go to Nineveh. So after Jonah is vomited, or as some read it in Hebrew, expelled, which, by the way, is by a female fish, which is different from the male fish that swallowed him, Jonah is expelled or essentially birthed or rebirthed onto the shore. He finally listens to God, walks to the center of Nineveh, and delivers his grandiose speech, right? His speech of repentance, the one that he's been avoiding, so scared to, to tell, and the speech is literally just 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and that's it. <laughs> Unlike all the other prophetic uh, books of the Bible, there isn't a monologue or a scary message from God. This message is short and to the point, and again, contrary to other prophetic books, that one sentence is all it takes for the entire city to repent. The people, the king, and if you have the story of Exodus in the back of your mind, uh, kings don't have such a smooth trajectory of quick and easy instances of repentance. And even the animals put on sackcloth and ashes and repent. I mean, it's great. And then we get to chapter 4, which is where I want to sit for a little bit because it is just so good. So after God decides not to destroy Nineveh, the text says that Jonah, quote, thought this was utterly wrong and he became angry. Now, Jonah often gets a bad rap, right? First for disobeying God and then for getting angry at God because everyone, including the animals and the king, repented. But I want to look at this text from decolonized eyes and I want to remember colonial wounds and not ignore or brush past colonial trauma. As many of us might know, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, 
which are the group of people who had captured Israel and forced thousands to resettle, to live in exile. In essence, the Assyrians were the empire, the colonizers, if you will, and they were known for being extremely evil and extremely brutal, for killing children, for raping women. I, I even read somewhere that their ruthless cruelty was due to their religious belief that war was an act of worship. So first, Jonah's not too thrilled about preaching a message of repentance to people that could and probably would kill him, and not just kill him, but ruthlessly and brutally murder him. Now, I don't know about you, but that feels pretty relatable, right? Like Jonah is like any one of us who is terrified to do terrifying things. And when you're a part of a marginalized group, it can even feel almost like offensive to be expected to save or even offer a message that can potentially be hopeful to your oppressors, right? But it goes further. You see, if you're Israel... If you're God's people, who have this pro you have this promise in the back of your mind that God will destroy the powerful, that God will, will get rid of your enemies, right? I mean, we read this over and over in Scripture. For Jonah, there was a strong belief that God would restore peace by making sure the oppressors are no more, and that wouldn't necessarily happen by them repenting, but instead by God destroy destroying them by Israel's God showing up in power and might to defend his people. And that's important to remember here in the story of Jonah, particularly as we read the rest of his prayer of protest, I like to call it in chapter 4. Because there's this really interesting and powerful detail that's often missed that I think is worth noting. So chapter 4, verse 2, after it says that Jonah thought, God sparing Nineveh was utterly wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and he says, Come on, Lord, wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are merciful and compassionate, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy, he says. But you see what's interesting about this prayer is the fact that Jonah is actually quoting Exodus chapter 34 almost verbatim. In Exodus, after Moses chisels the stone tablets and goes up to Mount Sinai, God appears in a cloud and God says, I am the Lord, I am compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. What's interesting about Jonah's prayer is that when he quotes this passage, he actually misquotes it, which would certainly have caused folks, original readers and hearers of this story, to perk their ears up because surely this is no accident. Surely a prophet knows his text, right? Especially this really important part of the story, namely the appearance of the Ten Commandments. So something is going on here, and the only way to know is to really know the words that are at play in the text. And this is why I love studying this mysterious and just magical and infuriating book. Now, the word Jonah leaves out in his prayer or his speech to God is the word faithfulness, which is also translated in the Hebrew as truth. One of my favorite Bible scholars, Marty Solomon, when wrestling with this point, that jo he brings up the fact that Jonah is the son of Amittai, which literally means the son of truth. Again, original readers would probably have caught on to this. Jonah, son of truth, quoting God's own words back to God, leaving out the fact that God is a God of truth. 
You see, what's happening here, friends, what Jonah is saying in his protest to God is, hey, God, you've said you're loving. You've said you're compassionate. You're gracious. And I affirm those things. But God, you're not committed to truth. Because if you were committed to truth, you'd destroy our enemies like you said you would. You see, this is where Jonah's anger stems from. As Marty says, Jonah is upset because God isn't restoring shalom to the chaos. The chaos of evil, the chaos of injustice, the chaos of empire. This makes us see Jonah a little differently, doesn't it? Like, maybe Jonah isn't just pouting. Instead, perhaps Jonah's anger is simply wanting to hold God accountable to God's word. And wow, friends, I don't know, but that is very powerful. If Jonah is anything, first and foremost, he's human. But second, he's like kind of inspiring. His relationship with God to me, feels so intimate, right? Like to know God so well and to expect God to be who God said God is. I want to know God the way Jonah does. I want to have the intimacy to challenge God, to wrestle with God, to be angry at God and not feel guilty or shameful about that. Like I said, I'm a new parent, and of course, I'm reading all the parenting things, and my child is still so tiny, but I'm preparing for the toddler stage, as I've heard you should. So I was listening to a podcast recently that talked about how it's not always a bad thing if our kids are upset at us. It means they feel safe to let us know how they feel, to be honest, to know they have permission to be mad because they are loved. And I think Jonah does that for us. First, gives us permission to be human, Because if a prophet can wrestle with anger and with justice and God's promises, so can we. But second, Jonah invites us to be intimate with God, to challenge God, to be our full selves, upset and unsure because we know we are safe and loved. But friends, it doesn't stop at Jonah. You see, what happens next is one of my absolute favorite things in all of scripture. It's God's response to Jonah after this prayer of protest, after Jonah challenges God as a God of truth, finishing his prayer by even telling God that it would be better for him to die than to live. You see, it's one thing for our children to be angry at us and for us to be angry at God, but there's more to a relationship, right? How we respond to our children, how God responds to us is just as important. Hey, Jonah, God says, is your anger a good thing? God doesn't say, hey, Jonah, stop being angry. Your anger isn't a good thing. The very next line is, is your anger a good thing? And isn't that such a good question? You know, maybe Jonah's anger wasn't a good thing. But maybe it was. What I love is that God gives Jonah the opportunity to wrestle, to look within himself, to question, to wonder, is my anger a good thing? 
I remember years ago when I uh, first heard about the Enneagram and had typed myself as an eight, I began listening to folks and or listening to talks and trying to learn about myself and my number. And I know the Enneagram isn't as cool as it once was, so bear with me as I talk about it. Um, but early on in my journey, I heard Nadia Boltzweber in a podcast talk about being an eight herself. And she said this quote that I'll never forget. She said, I walk around with my middle finger to the world all the time. And I laughed so much when I heard that because I had never, had never felt so seen in that moment. But as they continued to chat in the podcast, they shared about how eights, particularly female eights, are often misunderstood as just combative or mean-spirited. And yes, we can be. And a slew of other words, which I'm not going to name right here. But I learned something so important in that conversation by these Enneagram experts. I learned that my anger, for the most part, when not misplaced or out of control, often stems uh, from the desire to see the world do right. Us eights want justice. We want fairness. We want the underdog to win, and the, wor and the world honestly isn't that way, right? And so we walk around angry and just generally annoyed at how terrible humans can be, like, all the time. Y'all, learning this about myself was so helpful because I used to experience so much shame for feeling the way that I felt, especially as a woman, because the evangelical world tells us that to be godly, we must be quiet and submissive and generally unbothered. But as I learned how to navigate my anger in a healthy and constructive way, it gave me the permission to not beat myself up, but to learn to investigate if and when my anger is a good thing or if and when it's not. If my anger is hindering me from healing or leading me toward destruction instead of liberation. Friends, we need to be given the freedom to do that. And I love that God does that for Jonah, for us. And so this question from God, is your anger a good thing, is so healing and so restorative. Because like I said, sometimes my anger isn't a good thing. Sometimes the oppressor does repent or does make things right. And sometimes, like Jonah, I don't think that's fair. But God gives me the opportunity to wrestle, to ask myself why, to get to know myself, and even more so, to get to know God better to shatter any expectation of what I thought God should do or who God should be. It allows me to see and experience God's mercy anew, even if I don't like it. And then sometimes my anger, our anger, is a good thing. You know, Jonah wasn't very happy about what the Assyrians had done to his people. He was probably really angry at the murders and the evils that had been done, the injustices, and that kind of anger is certainly a good thing. We need to be angry at injustice because that sort of anger is what leads to restoration and liberation. Our healing begins, but does not end, with righteous anger. The kind of anger that turns over tables, the kind of anger that calls the powerful to account. In an interview with Krista Tippett, civil rights icon Ruby Sales explains that love is not antithetical to being outraged, that love is not antithetical to anger. She talks about how there are two kinds of anger. There's redemptive anger and there's non-redemptive anger. For her, redemptive anger is the anger that moves us to transformation and human upbuilding. Non-redemptive anger is the anger that things like 
white supremacy and nationalism and racism and sexism and homophobia and hate and injustice roots itself in. It's an anger that destroys, that takes life, that oppresses, that exploits. And yes, any of us can get caught up in non-redemptive anger. So we wonder, was Jonah's anger a good thing? The story ends with God providing Jonah a shrub for shade while he was sitting outside of the city contemplating his anger. Then God sent a worm to eat the shrub, and again, Jonah gets upset, and God asks, is your anger about the shrub a good thing? And I love that Jonah is honest with God, giving us the permission to be honest with God. He answers, yes, it is, <laughs> which is great. I love that. And God responds, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from the left and also many animals. And that's it, folks. That's how the book ends. I said in the beginning that life is full of more questions than there are answers. And the book of Jonah is proof that God doesn't need us to have all the answers. Can't I pity Nineveh, he asks. And we don't know what Jonah says after that. Maybe they kept going back and forth. Maybe they continued to argue. Maybe Jonah recognized his anger had gone from good thing to not so good thing. We don't know. But we do get a glimpse of their relationship, of the intimacy Jonah might have felt with God. The point of the story is God's mercy, and God's mercy is a beautiful and maybe even an irritating thing. But God's mercy doesn't negate our humanity, our humanness, our desire to see justice. So I ask one last time, friends, was Jonah's anger a good thing? I don't think we really get an answer. What I think we get is an invitation to wrestle with God, to ask ourselves the same question. Is my anger a good thing? Is it leading to life and to liberation and to restoration? Or is it leading to death?